0: Alright, so uh, it's Palm Sunday. Um, I'm pretty excited to be here with you guys this morning. I was going to ride a donkey in just for the sake of illustration, uh, but uh, unfortunately a high view isn't quite as accommodating as our previous uh, home was. We're not even peanut friendly here. I don't know that that a donkey would would have been appropriate. Uh, But it's a good morning to be able to be bringing the word with you guys because it's such a historical day. Um, I didn't really get to start to study uh, biblical history, at least, until I started to pursue my Christian uh, studies degree at DBU. Um, And uh, it was really kind of a neat experience for me because I really like history. I'm just kind of one of those guys that I consider myself to be a history buff. If you actually see me reading a book, like an actual turn-the-page type of book, it's usually uh, historical fiction or historical nonfiction um, if I'm watching a movie and it's based on real events, I'm usually a lot more engaged. Um, I usually pay a lot more attention until about halfway through and then I find myself opening up a laptop and I'm like Googling things and double checking facts and trying to do research to make sure that they're portraying that it's actually historically accurate. Um, I even am kind of weird where I'll look and see who the main person is and who they're supposed to be playing. And I'll look at pictures of who that person really was and I'll compare to make sure that they at least resemble one another, right? That's the kind of weird kind of mindset that I have when it comes to history because it just absolutely fascinates me. So as I prepared for this particular week, I found myself doing like I normally do. Um, I'll usually kind of ask God to, to reveal some sort of truth through Scripture to me. Uh, that I can then deliver to you guys. And usually on most uh, mornings that I preach for you guys, it's like 90% truth, and then it's got like 10% history kind of kind of woven into that, right? Like um, we we'll usually look at some sort of piece of Scripture that is historically grounded, and we'll talk about it, and we'll bridge that gap. But I usually want there to be some sort of... Um, modern application to the truth. We really don't focus a whole lot on the history of it. But as I started to dig into Palm Sunday, I found myself uh, doing the same thing that I do when I'm watching a movie or reading a book that's based on on real things. And I found myself Googling and fact-checking and looking at different things that applied to what took place on that, that first um, Palm Sunday. And so if you're not into history, I hope this doesn't feel too much like a class to you, because this is going to be more like a, instead of 90-10, it's going to be more like a 60-40 split of history and, and wisdom. So uh, bear with me, We're, we'll be on a journey, uh, journey together. Um, there's something about Passion Week that really fascinates me. Um, I would have loved to have been an observer during that week, just to fly on the wall, just to see, like, as Jesus prepared uh, the disciples during the Last Supper and kind of got them ready for the fact that he was about to be uh, leaving them or um, even to see Jesus in the garden as he was praying and and calling out to the Father. Even to be there when Peter, knucklehead Peter, drew his sword in order to defend Jesus and lopped that guy's ear off. Like, I would have loved to have just been there to see some of that, right? Like, I feel like the air... During that week was probably filled with, with angst and anticipation. There was probably a little bit of worry, and then it was all dancing alongside this wave of hope. What's fascinated me the most, though, about kind of the Passion Week is that the contrast between the way the week began and the way that the week actually ended, right? You see this change in tone. You see kind of a shift in the masses where they go from crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and then by the end of the week, they're screaming, crucify. It's that duality that I want us to examine this morning. I'm pretty proud of myself for using the word duality. Um, <laughs> Shannon has raised my vocabulary game. Uh, he gives me a word a day, and so Monday was duality. So I, that's there we go. It's good like that. So as we work through this, I want you guys to do something for me this morning, okay? I want you to try to put yourself in the narrative that we're going to be reading. I want you to actually try to picture the scene of what took place that first Palm Sunday, and I want it to do a couple of things. I want it to actually place you there, but I want you to identify who you would be in this historical event. What role would you have played on that first Palm Sunday. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to John chapter 12. That's what we're going to be playing at this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 19. I'll give you a second to turn there. We'll have it up on, the, up on the screen as well. It starts off and it says this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The day before Palm Sunday, Jesus is actually in Bethany um, with Lazarus, the, the same Lazarus that a few days before he's actually raised from the dead. And this is critical because this is the spark that's really pushed the Pharisees over the edge. It's the tipping point of Jesus's earthly ministry. At this point, you've seen Jesus do all kinds of amazing things, right? He's turned water into wine. He's healed the blind. He's fed the multitude. He's walked on water. And now he's raised a man from the dead. And with each one of these miracles, the crowds have grown in size. And with it, the Pharisees have grown more angry and more angry and more angry. Um, I picture the scene in Braveheart when you see William Wallace and he's, he's running up the side of like some mountain in the, in the Scottish Highlands. And you hear a voice kind of come over it and it's like, I heard William Wallace killed 50 men. 50, right? And then it switches to the king and he's all mad and angry, right? This might be the only Palm Sunday where we, where we bridge the gap here between William Wallace and, and Jesus. But I picture the same kind of thing, right? Like the same voice being like, I hear this Jesus has healed 50 men, 50, right? And then it switches to the Pharisees and they're, they're beating on the table and they're all angry, right? The raising of Lazarus was the last straw for the Pharisees. They were done with this man that claimed to be the Messiah, They were done with all of these miracles that he was doing and and all of these crowds that were growing were just making it worse and worse for them. But it was really bad for the Pharisees at this particular period of time because this is when all of the Jews were coming to Jerusalem in order to meet to celebrate Passover. The town was swelling with people. Like of, of all the times for Jesus to really get a lot of attention, this really wasn't it. Because Bethany, as a town, was so close to Jerusalem that the people could actually walk back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem, given the news that they were hearing. So the news of Lazarus being raised from the dead traveled very, very fast. And so it just so happens that as Jesus is performing arguably one of the grandest of his earthly miracles, Jerusalem is busting at the seams with people. Now, People are going to start hearing of what Jesus is doing and they're gonna start talking to one another. They're anxiously awaiting his arrival. Now, I've never met anybody famous. I've met a couple people that are semi-famous, but the scene that I picture here in Jerusalem is kind of similar to this, right? I got to meet Mookie Blalock. Now, there's only a couple of you here that probably even know who Mookie Blaylock is, all right? But Mookie Blaylock, he graduated from Garland High School and then ended up going in the first round of the NBA draft and went to the New Jersey Nets. And it was that year that Mookie decided to come back home to Rowlett Elementary, where I was going to school, to visit. It was a cousin or nephew or younger brother, to eat lunch with him. And so I'm sitting there as a second grader and I hear Mookie Blaylock's coming to lunch. And I'm like, I have no clue who Mookie Blaylock is, okay? And so news starts to spread throughout the school, though, that he's this famous basketball player. So we start getting all excited, right? And a 30-minute lunch later and a signed napkin and I got to say that I, I got to meet Mookie Blaylock. Now, I didn't care much about basketball as a second grader. I didn't really care about the New Jersey Nets or Mookie Blaylock. And you're wondering, what in the world is the point? Here's the point, Okay. For the Jews that are in Jerusalem during this period of time, for their entire life and for generations, they've been anticipating and waiting on the arrival of the Messiah. They've been talking about it. They've been waiting for it. They've been hoping for this to happen. So you can imagine the excitement as they start to hear this rumor that Jesus is outside the city. He's raised a man from the dead, and this is the guy that's claiming to be the Messiah, Now, some scholars estimate that Jerusalem during the Passover feast could have swelled from a few thousand all the way up to almost two million people. And it's electric with this idea that the Messiah is going to come. In fact, we even see in Scripture where they start to ask, like, do you think that he's going to come to the feast? Are we going to get to see him? Are we going to get to experience this man that's claiming to be the king? And as word spreads around the city, the Pharisees realize they're losing their grasp on their people. And so the orders given, if you see Jesus arrest him, they've started to formulate the plan and plot to kill Jesus. So Jesus is hanging out with Lazarus in Bethany and word gets out that he is there. And so a large group leaves Jerusalem and starts to head to Bethany to see Lazarus and to see Jesus. Now, there's also a group that's formed there already that actually saw him perform the miracle. So we have a large group that's there. We've got a large group that's leaving Jerusalem and going to meet him. And then once they get there, Jesus decides he's going to Jerusalem. Once they find out in Jerusalem that he's coming, they decide they want to go out and meet him. So you've got two tidal waves of people converging outside of Jerusalem as Jesus begins to enter into the city. It's not a few of Jesus's closest friends here. When we talk about a multitude, we're talking about thousands of people, and they're waving palm branches and they're laying them at his feet and they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now, I think there's a couple of things that as I started to kind of peel the onion back on this that I thought was was pretty interesting. Um, And it was a lot of the symbolism and the prophecy that we see from Jesus coming into the city. And the first thing is the palm branches. I'd never really thought about it before. Like I never really thought of the significance of Palm Sunday. Um, I just kind of knew that there were palms associated with his arrival, but I didn't know what they meant. And I think it's pretty important Um, if you look at palm branches during this particular time, it was a sign of victory. It was a sign of uh, the end of a conflict. It was a a sign of triumph. And typically at the end of a conflict, if there was a victory, then that meant that there was going to be peace that would be associated with the end of that war that was taking place. So these palm branches for them signified that they were recognizing that Jesus was the Savior because victory had arrived. Peace would now be here because the conflict was going to be over. The second thing is they're crying out, Hosanna, 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 right? This is a word that I think loses a little bit of weight with us in the modern church because we sing it from time to time. But do we really know what the word Hosanna means? Well, the actual translation of the word Hosanna is save now, right? And so what they're doing is they're basically crying out for God to save them. It's a scream of salvation, if you need to put yourself in the mindset of, of what they're saying and the way they're saying it, I want you to, to try to imagine yourself stranded at sea for six months. No food, no water. You are on the brink of death. You've got that weird crusty lip thing going. You've got sunburn beating down on you. You are on the, uh, about to die. And then a ship can be seen in the distance. As you would scream for that ship, help, rescue me, save me. That is the exact same thing as the cries of Hosanna that these people are screaming out to Jesus. That's what they recognized it as. The third thing is the donkey. Um, you would think that uh, a king entering into the city would, would be on top of a giant white steed, right? Like that, that's what you would picture. A big giant horse is the way that Jesus should have entered into the city of Jerusalem. A, a, a horse would have been a symbol of power. It would have been a symbol of a conquering hero, right? But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes into the city with two donkeys and he's not even riding on the bigger donkey. It says that he rides on the baby donkey of the bigger donkey, right? That's how Jesus enters into the city. It's important because what we see is is Jesus isn't entering as a conquering king. He's entering as a humble servant. And this is something that even confuses the disciples, right? It says the disciples didn't understand these things. They didn't quite get the symbolism there until they realized that Jesus' arrival on the donkey actually fulfilled a prophecy from 500 years before from Zechariah that said that Zion's king would, in fact, be riding a donkey. So you've got Jesus coming in on the donkey. You've got palm branches. You've got people that are going completely nuts. The place is crazy. And if you think about it, if you take a snapshot of just that arrival, you think That's, it's perfect. It's exactly what you would imagine of the Messiah entering into Jerusalem, of the king finally being there, right? This is exactly what the people of Jerusalem expected. Their king had arrived, right? The celebration was never going to end. This party wasn't going to stop, but it did. The multitude morphed from a celebration of saving to an angry mob within a matter of days. And as I looked at this, as I started to pour over this scripture, it kind of confused me. It didn't... It didn't make sense. Why? Why would these people turn on him so fast? Why would these people lift Jesus up so high and then look so far down on him? What happened in their hearts? I think we can learn a lot from the mob as I think about the modern church and I think about the throngs of people that leave it on a rapid, rapid pace Um, I start to think of my own conversion story and I start to think of the fact that I got to a point where I gave my life over to Christ and it was very much the same as what I see happening here on, on this Palm Sunday. Right, I got to a point where I realized I can't do it on my own. I need you. Save me. That was a declaration that I made. And sadly, there's a lot of people in the church that make that exact same declaration and then turn around and in a short time completely walk away from their faith. I think that part of the reason for that we can see in the mob that we see here welcoming Jesus that first Palm Sunday. So a couple things we can learn. The first thing is this, that the mob was more interested in the show than the Savior. Um, When I first read this account, something jumped out at me in verse 9. It said that they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. What caught me off guard there was, it says, not only on account of him. Not only on account of Jesus. And my first thought was they should have only been coming on account of him. That should have been the only reason why they were making the trip to Bethany was to see Jesus. wasn't to see Lazarus. It's the same same thing you see during some of these other miracles. Where they were coming to see what kind of amazing thing was going to to happen. And as excited as I want to be about the masses of people that were coming to meet Jesus. The truth is is they, they were thrill seekers. They were just there for the show. And I'm not saying all of them were. I'm not saying that the entire mob had bad intentions, but there was a good majority that did. They weren't looking for a Messiah. They were looking for the miracle. They wanted to see the show. That's what they wanted. They wanted to know what all the excitement was about. The problem, though, is there's no substance in the show. It's not. And what I see is when I look around the modern church and I see all the throngs of people that are leaving it, I see people that end up coming to church for the show and not for the Savior. And what happens is, is the buzz dies down or the excitement wears off and they're left looking for the next exciting thing to rile them up. They need that. They need that excitement. They need to be fed in that way. And when I started to first look at this triumphant entry of Jesus and I started to think about it through that that sense, I I really wondered why? Why is that? How how could people come into the church and see Jesus but not necessarily attached to him? How could this particular multitude give such a triumphant entry to Jesus and then turn around and, and with hate in their eyes and treason in their hearts scream for his death? And the answer is abundantly clear. They found a better show. They showed up on Sunday, and everyone was excited about his arrival, and then they turned around and saw that everyone was excited for his death, and they just went along with what the crowd was doing. When you pursue the Savior instead of the show, it isn't about what you can get. It isn't about you at all, really. It's about Him. I love the way that John MacArthur says it. He says, You don't come to Jesus because of what you can get, you come to Him because of who He is. I don't come to Him because of what He gives me, but because of what He deserves. From me, it's pretty weighty, and I'm pretty guilty of this. Okay, when I think about my time here in the church, and I even think about when I took over the student ministry, and I remember how excited I was right, all the excitement that I had about becoming the student pastor. It was gonna be awesome, it was gonna be a big party, right? Like, you just hang out with kids. I basically act like a 12 year old most of the time, anyways. Now I've got an excuse to do that. We're gonna do stuff like I don't know, paintball and camps and all that kind of fun stuff, and then I realized it's a whole lot of hard work. It's a lot of hard work and it's messy the kids in our church are struggling the same way that all of us are struggling all of a sudden I found myself going what in the world am I doing here maybe you volunteered with students or, or with with the children and you walk into the room and and they look so cute right and then the door closes and it breaks out into pure chaos and you're wondering what in the world have I gotten myself into right Maybe at some point you thought, I'm going to be a missionary. That's what I want to do. It seems very romantic. I'm going to go off to some third world country and I'm going to be in the jungles of of Africa sharing the good news of the gospel with people. It's going to be awesome. And then you get there and you realize you don't get to bathe and it's lonely and it's tough. Maybe you just became a believer or you just got baptized and there was all the excitement about the decision that you had made. And then all of a sudden everybody leaves and you realize that you still struggle. There's still sin in your life. Here's the point. If you're pursuing Christ in hopes of getting something, while it might be exciting and it might be fun and it might be easy at first, what you're going to quickly realize is that it's really, really hard. And the only thing that's going to keep you from running at the first sign of difficulty is being locked in on who he is and what he has done. Because it's the only thing that's going to keep you from moving on to the next thrilling, exciting thing after the excitement dies down. As much as we hate to hear this, seeking the Savior means that we need to embrace service. Okay? Like I think of the Great Commission, it says go and make. And in order for us to be able to do that, in order for us to go and make, we have to get involved. We have to, but we're busy, right? Like it, it's difficult for us. Because time is the one thing that we can't get back. So you have a long, hard week at work. You're trying to corral family members to try to get them here on Sunday. And the truth is, if you show up to a small church like this, we're gonna hit you up here and we're gonna try to put you to work. You walk in the door and you go, hey, how can I help? Have you made that mistake? And then all of a sudden I'm calling you and I want you to serve with with children or or with students or the greeter's grabbing you and he wants you to start shaking hands with people. Somebody hands you a baby, you don't know whose it is, right? (laughs) We want you to serve. We want you to do those things. And the reality is, is that the best service that you can even do isn't in the walls of this church. It's Monday through Saturday when you leave this place. And it's a lot. When you start to think about it, you're like, man, this is, it kind of wears me down a little bit. There's so much that you're asking for me. And I've actually heard people tell me, you know, I just want to go to a church where nobody asks me to do anything. That's what I'm looking for. I want to go to a church where nobody asks me to do anything and I can walk in the back and hopefully nobody even knows I'm there and I can leave and nobody even knows that I'm gone. Nobody calls me up when I've missed a Sunday. That's the kind of church that I want. I want good music. I want a great preacher. I want to get a little bit of entertainment out of it. All right, if they've got some smoke and mirrors and all that kind of stuff, that would be great. And then I want to leave and I don't want anything to ask anybody to ask anything of me. I want whatever I can get without giving Jesus what he actually deserves. And it's a scary proposition when you think about that. When you you start to answer the question, am I giving Jesus what he deserves from me? Now, don't get me confused here, all right? Don't get me confused. Don't let me confuse you, okay? (laughs) It's, It's not about what Jesus requires from you. I'm not saying that he's requiring something from you. That's the beauty of the gospel is that there's nothing that's required from us because of what he's done But that's the reason why he deserves so much. So the first thing that we learned from the mob is that they're seeking the show, they're not seeking the savior. And the second thing is they wanted instant gratification. You need to understand the world that the Jews were living in this particular time. If you look at the Old Testament, you see that that they were constantly oppressed, right? They were always kind of the least and the lowly. They wanted the conquering king to come and save them. That's what they wanted here on earth. They wanted earthly reign. They were hoping Jesus would show up. He would become the king. And then by default, they would become rulers and they would be elevated from the least all of a sudden to be the people that are in charge. And so that's what they were hoping that they were going to get. Now, we can look back on that and go, that's not what they got. But I think that for us, that when when Christ enters our life, we approach it the same way. We hope that he's going to come into our life as a conquering hero, right? Like if I pray a prayer and and raise my hand, then all of a sudden all of my pain will stop. All of my struggle will cease and I'm going to be made perfect. That's what we hope. And we completely miss that God's continued work of sanctification in our lives means that we are going to pursue holiness and perfection, but we're never going to achieve it. It's never going to happen. Pain's going to continue. Sin's going to remain. The struggle is going to persist. The difference, though, is for those of us that are focused on the Messiah and not on the miracles, we realize that the requirement for perfection isn't necessary. It's because Christ already provided it for us. When conversion happens and Christ becomes the focal point of our life, then it becomes a journey. Now this is something that I've been talking about with our students over the course of the last couple weeks, because I think we think that it's got to be this giant leap to perfection, and the reality is is this journey is made up a lot more of small, tiny steps as we move in that direction than it is, a whole handful of leaps. And that's comforting for us. That should be comforting for us, because it means we don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to be perfect. We aren't required for that. We don't have to raise our hand and pray that prayer, and then ta-da, you're, you're well. But in the midst of our imperfection, we need to know this. This is the most important thing, that that Jesus still loves us. He still pursues us, and he still provides for us. And so as we draw near to Easter, I think that we can get caught up in what Jesus has done, right? We, We look a lot at the resurrection, and I think that we should, but I don't think that we should approach it with the hope of what we can get as a result of it. I think that we should look and see the promise that that he has already given to us. It's not a matter of what we can continue to get. Instead of continuing to look at that, I want us to ask ourselves what he deserves from us. What does Jesus deserve for us? And my prayer for us and my prayer for myself is that we don't approach Christ as the the mob, as the thrill seekers, looking to see what the, the next crazy miracle is gonna be, but that we look not for the show, but that we yearn for the Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we, uh, we love you. We love the fact that this week we uh, continue to get to celebrate the sacrifice, what you've given to us. God, I pray that that allows for us to begin to focus not on... Uh, what the next thing is that you're going to give to us, the the next thing that we hope that we get from uh, pursuing you, God, but that we continue to pursue you and we continue to give to you because that's what you deserve from us. And I pray that this is a season of reflection for us, that we get to see the the promise of what you gave on the cross and the fact that even though we are imperfect people, that that you have paid the penalty for us. And, And God, I pray that that doesn't mean that we sit by idly and, And just hope for the day that that we get to call that favor in, God, but that it propels us into a life of continued service. And that when things do get tough, when the excitement does die down, and when the smoke clears, that we don't go looking for the next thing that's going to try to make us happy or give us temporary pleasure, temporary happiness, or temporary excitement, but we continue to stay focused on you. And we know that your promise is real. And we're reminded of it this week as we get to celebrate your resurrection. We love you. We praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.